Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day, with a truly excellent free email newsletter, an equally great smartphone app, and of course at the revamped website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Manhattan today along with SubChina Editor-in-Chief Jeremy Goldcorn, where we are joined by our friend Joan Kaufman. Joan is the director for academics of the Schwartzman Scholars Program in Beijing. Before that, and before she left Beijing, just before I did, she you left just before I did, right, Johnny? Yeah, I left in uh, uh, spring of 2016. Yeah, okay, yeah, so just before I did. So you were the director of Columbia University's Global Center for East Asia, as well as a lecturer at Harvard University, which you've been doing, so you're still doing that, right? Yeah, I'm, I've been doing that since 20, 2003, 2003 yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, she's one of those people with a long and storied career in China that dates way back to the early 1980s, working as program officer with the United Nations and for many years in China with the Ford Foundation. Uh, Joan, thanks so much for making the time and uh, great to finally have you on the show. Yeah, well, I'm so happy to be here with two of my favorite people, Kaiser and Jeremy. Well, thank you, Joan. In the interest of full disclosure, listeners, I need to mention that Joan is on our SubChina advisory board. Yes, yeah. and delighted to be part of that fabulous new venture. I think so you. now we've um, promoted ourselves. Right. Let's get on the show. So we, we have a lot to talk to you about today, about the Schwartzman Scholars Program for sure, but also more broadly about the state of U.S. educational institutes and their efforts in China, because, you know, these run the gamut from smaller centers in Beijing or other cities up to full programs with substantial campuses that are co-invested with local governments, you know, like the Duke Quinshan Program and NYU Shanghai Program, most famously. Uh, we also want to talk to you about China's new NGO law, because, you know, you're somebody with really extensive NGO experience in China. They get your take on the law and whether the fear that it has generated with some of the institutions behind these programs in China is, in fact, warranted. But before we get to that stuff, we'd really like to coax some stories out of you, Joan, from your <laughs> early days in China. You started off, like many people of your generation, basically a lefty American armchair socialist type, if I understand correctly. And you were quite sympathetic to Mao's revolution and even to the cultural revolution. Is that correct? You were from Berkeley, right? You yeah, <laughs> well, I have to confess, I was. I used to refer to myself as a, a cappuccino and croissant socialist from Berkeley who <laughs> arrived in China in 1980 and thought the cultural revolution was a good thing. So wow. I was, you know, the Han Su Yin, uh, U.S.-China Friendship Association generation. And, uh, you know, I got to China and 
was pretty quickly disavowed of my uh, positive uh, uh, feelings about the Cultural Revolution after sharing an office with my UNFPA colleagues. Uh, after about three months and hearing their horror stories, uh, I, the, you know, the light bulb started going on. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take long. So my my dad went for the first time in '75, but he was sort of on the narrow kind of. The Potemkin Village tour, right? <laughs> the, the, the fat so he wasn't tapes. disabused. Of no, not, not right away. But the next right time away. he went back, and he was a little more on his own. I mean, right away, he just sort of saw what was behind the veneer, right? So, yeah, wow. Um, but, you know, let's hear more about that. So, you what what finally substantially disabused you of your of your crazy lefty Berkeley notions. <laughs> Cappuccino well, you know, I was there that fall. It was the trial of the gang of four. And, uh, you know, oh, I wow. just... So that's 78, right? Uh, no, it was so, 80. Oh, oh, it was oh, the right, trial right. of the yeah, gang of four, which was right, televised. Right. Everybody was just glued to the TV set. And, uh, you know, uh, after that trial and they were sentenced, you could just sort of feel that collective sigh of relief and the kind of opening feeling, you know, that forward moving feeling that I felt in China for most of the years that I was there, uh, you know, that things were moving forward and uh, putting the past to some degree behind. So, yeah, it didn't take long before I kind of, uh, you know, came to my senses and uh, uh, understood history a little bit more accurately. Uh, and like all Chinese people started to Wang Tian Kan. No, not Jody. So you were there uh, with UNFPA, um, right? There was one great story. I remember your going away party that cold winter day yeah. in Kutong. Uh, you told a great story that I, 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 I've shared with other people. I just want to make sure that I'm getting it right, though. So, um, so UNFPA, the UN, United Nations Population Fund, uh, and it had something to do with condom factory, if I could. Yeah, remember. absolutely. Well, I was just a young thing, you know, this young hippie from Berkeley, and I did kind of, uh, you know, get with the program. UNFPA had, uh, you know, started in China in 79, along with the other UN agencies invited in by Deng Xiaoping. And I was one of two, and a very sm it was a very small staff for the UN system there. And my boss was away, so I was delegated to go officiate at the ribbon cutting at the condom factory. And I really was this young thing. And uh, I, it was, you know, I kind of held it together. I have to say it was a pretty funny thing. But you know, we had helped bring in this, you know, supposedly, you know, state-of-the-art technology for a condom dipping line. And so we went out to go look around at Wait, this so they're thing. dipped. They're dipped in the bat in the oh, big so vat like of a latex, latex vat. right? Okay. Yeah. So, so this penis-shaped thing. Absolutely. Is dipped. Okay. And you know, I had a photo of that at the going away party. We, you know, we collected all those old photos from the eighties. And I had a picture of the alienated labor of the little old ladies who were like rolling the condoms off the formers of the of the dipping line after they came out of the dryer <laughs> after being dipped in the, you know the latex. So right. I managed to not laugh, and I thought that was pretty good. And then there was the kind of quality control portion of it where they were dropped in a kind of vat and then um, people, these little old ladies would pick them up and put them on these formers again that had air holes in them and blow some air through them. And if air, you know, blow right, air right. through it. And if air came out, a light bulb would go on. And somewhere in the course of the quality control demonstration, they realized that the light bulb was burnt out. So oh, you know, it was just the whole thing was so comical. <laughs> but I did keep it together. But then we were in the final final reception where, you know, after this whole thing, and I was shaking the hand of the lead person from the China side there, and he handed me his card, and I swear it said something like this. It might not have been exactly it. It said something like, leading member, rubber industry. And I just... <laughs> 
I just lost it. I mean, I you know, I was not your self-respecting UN official. I just could not, oh could not. I started giggling, and there then was, it was, there was all over. Some really like cruel and and deeply humorous person who actually translated it. So, oh yeah, this is how you translate that title. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure that's what, what really really happened. Yeah. Um, didn't you undergo some pretty major surgery uh, at one point in a remote part of China? Can yes, you tell us that yes, story? Yes, you're getting all the highlights of my China experience here. Ten years later, 1993, I was traveling to China. At that point, I'd gone back, finished my PhD at Harvard, was a you know China researcher working in public health, and I was uh, you know in Kunming for a project and on my way uh, to two really remote rural areas where we were doing a study of some sexy topic like reproductive tract infections. And uh, I had just given birth to my first daughter, who, my first child, who was, you know, I'd left in in Boston for this trip. And I got a really bad stomach ache. And, you know, we decided not to leave for the countryside with my colleagues from Kunming Medical College until the next morning. And uh, I ended up spending the night in a uh, broom closet at the one of the at the first affiliated hospital in, and of Kunming Medical like a, College. Literally a broom closet. Yeah, they didn't want to admit me because I was a foreigner, but then when they finally realized that I had appendicitis, oh, that's what it was. Yeah, oh they uh, admitted me uh, to the you know Gauji Gambu ward up on the top floor, and I called Mark, my husband, for permission to get the surgery uh, on the cell phone of the uh, hospital president and my colleagues from my research study came in to reassure me and you know one of them said oh don't worry i had my appendix out here and i'm fine and she lifted her skirt and i had a frankenstein scarf of like one end of her body <laughs> to the other and i thought oh crap although no, so, that's when they sawed me in half actually <laughs> oh my gosh so i just said to the surgeons you know please don't give me a big scar he said something oh don't worry our hands are smaller than your western surgeons and uh then i the last thing i remember was entering the Operating room with the windows open, and uh, <laughs> oh my god! But I, you know, I did. I had no time to go anywhere else, so I had my appendix out in Kunming in 1993, and I was fine. You know, no oh, problems. Us, yeah. The hospital bill was pretty funny though, because it just, you know, reflected the uh, distorted pricing structure of the, uh, you know, the uh, broken down healthcare system where I paid an exorbitant amount of money for the food and uh, a small amount of money for the surgery. It was crazy. Yeah, uh, better than the other way around. I mean, yeah, how much can they really like charge that. you for the food? <laughs> yeah, it used to be crazily inexpensive. I, for years, I had never left a hospital without paying more than like 10 quai. <laughs> Socialism. I spent a lot of time Socialism. Yeah. Socialism. has its good points. I spent yeah. a lot of time trying to explain that bill to my medical insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> hey, cynical listeners. Are you all getting good sleep? Because that is really important. Can't say enough about how important it is. Sleep is the great panacea. Indeed. Even insomniacs like me who have phone calls with Beijing at 2 a.m. my time need to get good sleep, which is why we are delighted to tell you about our new supporter, Casper. Casper, indeed. Casper is the mattress company that is revolutionizing an industry that's long been dominated by just a few big overpriced brands. Uh, Casper is doing this by selling only online with free shipping to your door in a how-did-they-do-that-sized box. Full disclosure. Kaiser and I are still waiting for Casper to actually send us their mattresses. Uh-huh. So, Casper, if you're listening, please uh, 
uh, put it in priority mail. Uh, but we are looking forward to receiving the mattresses after checking out the huge numbers of satisfied reviews online. And we're not kidding. You can actually check out the satisfied reviews online. I did not actually know that people could get so excited by a mattress. Neither did I, but I am totally psyched to see why I'm really very, very excited to try memory foam uh, for a mattress. I've been doing the memory foam pillow and it's just been terrific. Uh, so please check out Casper, our new sponsor. Go to www.casper.com slash subchina and use the promo code subchina. That's S-U-P China, all one word for 50 bucks off your purchase of a Casper mattress. If you sleep well, dear listener, you will be happy. If you buy a Casper mattress, our sponsor will be happy. And so will we. Yes, we will be. And on the off chance that you don't like your Casper mattress, after a 100-day money-back guarantee period, you can just return it for free, including pickup. No springs attached. See what they did there? (laughs) Now on with the show. John, you spent many years working for the Ford Foundation in China. And the Ford Foundation is perhaps the quintessential foreign NGO or non-governmental organization in China. Uh, But that was during the aughts when things were relatively liberal. I'd like to shift now and and talk about how many programs, uh, whether NGOs or academic programs, uh, how they've fared during the last eight years or so in this rather less uh, liberal period. Because I think you bring very valuable perspective. Perhaps we can start by talking about these academic programs. When did they really get started in China and who pioneered them? Yeah, well, you know, I think the whole kind of global university thing really got off the ground uh, with, uh, you know, Yale and uh, Richard Levin's uh, 2005 mm-hmm. uh, paper on the internationalization of Yale. He really got the ivies on, you know, thinking about it and set the stage, I think, for a first, you know, really important major university to start thinking, why should the university work globally? What's the rationale? And pretty much every other university followed suit. And then not just in China, but, you know, around the world, uh, NYU with the, with the various campuses in uh, the Middle East and in China. And, you know, in China, I would say the Hopkins Nanjing Center was really the first collaboration, but that was really for a graduate program. Most of the other universities, including Columbia, where I was working, really took on the global agenda, really thinking about what is a global university? Why is it important to prepare our students to work globally in a globalized world? Uh, what does that mean? What's the meaning of co-equal knowledge where it's not just generated in the North? And, uh, you know, and how do you pull together the various threads that different, of different parts of the university working on international areas? Some parts of the university always work globally and do a lot of global research. How do you pull it together in a meaningful way and create a rationale around it, which many universities are doing now? So what are the ultimate goals of these university programs? I mean, presumably there are, you know, a bunch of different goals. There's intellectual and academic goals, uh, I guess, more practical business goals as well, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the noble goals, the uh, intellectual and academic goals are really about, you know, how do you train global citizens and faculty who can teach them? And how do you, uh, you know, absolutely create a... Uh, 
kind of a global knowledge base or knowledge generation enterprise, which then can come back and be part of the educational material uh, on the campus. And also, how do you engage on global issues outside of, you know, North America in a sense? And how do you, how do you create discussions and open discussions and open discourse on important global issues around the world in a world that where you need you know, the world to solve it, not just, you know, the, the major universities so in these, the West. So these are the noble goals. I mean, so presumably there are also these ignoble goals. That yeah, are, so. yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're... Their intention, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that for all universities right now, China, it's important. China and other places are very important for subsidizing the bottom line. There's a financial and a business goal. You know, we have huge, over 350,000 you know, uh, Chinese students studying in the United States right now paying full freight tuition, uh, very much subsidizing, uh, you know, the uh, needs-based uh, admissions pro- policies at many of the leading universities. And, uh, you know, these Chinese students who are really eager to come to China, to the United States and study, uh, it all levels, you know, everywhere from Harvard to, you know, Podunk University, uh you know, they're... Well, that's they're, where I went. <laughs> that's where you live, Jeremy, right? Jeremy, it's where I teach. Goldcorn holler, university goldcorn holler. But, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're really, they're paying full tuition, yeah, right? Yeah. And it, it subsidizes the enterprise. I mean, there's a lot and of... And this is, this is in the U.S., but the, some of those people or the same demographic are also paying in China and in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, those I mean, are where think, the schools are being set up, right? The two areas right, with a right, lot of right, high right. net worth individuals. But to have a presence and a brand name in China, you know, is important in terms of attracting right, right, right. Intra- attracting students to your home University, and that's one angle. And the other is there's a huge amount of high net worth in uh, the Middle East, where these places are set up, and increasingly in China. China has you know a lot of more billionaires these days, if you know you believe the Huronda report and all that stuff. So you know, and there's a lot of high net worth there. You know, parents of stu- of, uh, of students is a the target for fundraising. Alums who go back, who you know can give to the university and help subsidize that bottom line. So there's a huge financial angle on this. Um, and is it working? Are they making money and getting <laughs> getting grants and, you know, is the model working? I don't think so. You know, I just think that uh, if they're going to exist, they need to be subsidized by the home university. Or by a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, or by a billionaire. But I mean, I'm talking about the independent centers, right? right, right? right. I don't think any of them are really going to be in existence five years from now because they have this pressure to kind of, to, uh, you know, fund their bottom line, their salary and rents and stuff. It's easy to raise money for the bricks and mortars when you're setting it up among alums and stuff. But then the daily operations, you know, uh, who's going to pay for that? Who wants to pay for it? It's not very sexy. People want to pay for, uh, you know, for the programs. uh, And those are at the home university. They'd rather give to the home university. So there isn't a, you know, a strong, I think, clarity, uh, you know, between, uh, you know, the revenue sharing models or the cost sharing models. So these things are supported by the university. Universities, you know, and the ones that have the business schools involved, I think they do better because they at least have some contribution to the bottom line from these exec ed programs right, from so the Stanford business school. And, uh, the ones without the business school, it's just like a freebie space. Uh, you can maybe charge for space, but it's never going to be enough to really uh, bring in the, enough money to subsidize operations in an expensive place like China. So I think, you know, they have to be. Um, 
you know, it depends on the business plan, the business license. And I think there's been some evolution kind of in the Me Too versions of them among the centers. But ultimately, it's hard to raise money to support the bottom line after the place is in existence for a few years. And, and just as um, a pure branding expensive. kind of cost center, is that is it, it? you don't think it's worth it? You don't I think, think they have value. You know, I think they become more and more like a platform for the university to engage uh, to you know market itself globally as well as engage globally with academics and others policymakers on important global issues like urbanization or the environment or other things all these centers though are working on kind of same similar sets of issues so you know there might be more efficiency by more collaboration but then that doesn't promote the individual brands i think there's still a lot of thinking that has to go into what are these centers for and what's the business model that's going to make them work? The model I was operating under was a money-losing model. It was very hard to raise money and, um, and it, there wasn't a lot of clarity. I'd say I, on revenue sharing at campus, I often felt like I was competing with the schools or, you know, with the development office or something or the area centers for raising money, you know, for, for the Beijing centers. So, you know, I, if in the current climate, I would say, and in the current, um, uh, with the current business models, it's hard for me to imagine that any of these places are going to be in existence in five years, you know, unless they really get, you know, different parts of the university to buy in and help subsidize the thing. The money has to come, you know, from campus, there has to be more subsidization of the existence of these things. So... Uh, and, you know, and that's that's where the, there's a, a basic problem, of course, because, you know, the space for free expression, as mm -hmm. we're all very much aware, is contracting. I mean, Jeremy and I were on our way over here. We were talking about this phrase that I used to try to popularize, the new truculence, you know, I'd talk about. And, and I was saying, you know, Kaiser, you don't really use this anymore. And I said, well, yeah, because... Well, it's now not new. Well, Jeremy said it's not new. I said, yeah, it's just the truculence. <laughs> it's no longer the new truculence. But anyway, and, and there have been, you know, restrictions on teaching so-called universal values, for instance, and, and even, you know, bans on foreign textbooks. Uh, this is impacting university programs now. Um, you're somebody who's seen China move through different cycles of loosening and tightening over the last, what, 35 years or so. And I, I want to get your sense of what things look like maybe in the longer trajectory. Yeah, well... Um, I've been working in China for, you know, I hate to say 37 years, right? It makes me feel really old. I started working there when I was about three years old. Right. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I've seen, I've seen, I've kind of seen it all, you know, I've been through lots of retractions and relaxations, you know, after the Steve Mosier thing, all the kind of constraints uh -huh. on social science research that were put in place, the spiritual pollution campaign, China can just say no, you know, a lot of different things. And I've, but I've always kind of felt it was moving forward, you know, uh -huh. there would be these kind of... Uh, Three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah, right something right. like that, yeah. you know, just it kind of was a continuous move forward in a positive way. I felt fairly optimistic that it was more open. And, but I have to honestly say I felt less so in the last few years, but the starting point is really different because it's a really open place now in ways that can't even compare to where it was before yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. of the internet and the, so many people who've studied abroad and come back, uh, people who do international business. So, you know, I kind of say the genie's out of the bottle and yeah. I don't think you're going to put it back in there. And, you know, for so many Chinese... Not for want of trying. <laughs> not for lack of trying, yeah. right. But for so many sort of Chinese academics, the people that I work with a lot in my life, they're just 
just like me, you know, they are, they care about the same issues, they're open and forward looking, they're, you know, they're not going to be, their viewpoint is going to be changed by ideological rectification campaigns at this point in, in history about their you know, views about the West or the views about the world. And I think they just know how to navigate in their system. And I think it's an extremely difficult time to have to navigate. There's a lot going down, uh, might change after, you know, the 19th Party Congress. But for the moment, it's been a pretty, in the last several years, it's been a very, very much more restrictive but uh, backward heading yeah, yeah. environment, that's for sure. No question about that. And, yeah. that. and I also, I mean, I really appreciate, you know, the idea that, um, I mean, things are so much more open. Incom- it's incomparable to when you first uh, Absolutely. arrived. I mean, even, you know, my f- early experiences in media in the 90s in China, working with women's magazines, it was still controversial to have makeup and, you know, miniskirts. Right. Uh, you know, it was a kind of a political issue. I mean, young Chinese people don't know that or can scarcely believe it. So, I mean, you are talking about this huge change. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, this uh, illiberal environment of the last few years must have a direct effect on the American campuses in in China. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, I think, you know, you have to understand how these places are sort of set up. You know, there are the joint branch campus programs like the NYU's and the uh, uh, Du Kunshan's, you know, that have, or they actually have a Chinese partner. Um, and those places are, you know, I think those are relatively protected by their Chinese partner because uh, they want them there and they run interference for them in the system. The independent centers, you know, I think are a little bit more at risk, uh, first of all, because, you know, they're trying to be there supporting their own bottom lines, which has become harder and harder in this political environment, because are you allowed to fundraise? Are you, you know, can you do any kind of academic program that may be more, you know, on a sensitive issue? Mm -hmm, Those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I think the constraints are are certainly there. Absolutely, they're being more cautious. I think there is a climate of fear. Uh, certainly when the uh, the draft of the NGO law uh, came out, there was a kind of a huge step back. Like, first of all, does this law apply to the academic centers at all? I didn't think it did. I flagged to the university I was working with that this law was out there. I felt it was important for them to know that this law f- that was going to govern organizations that were not-for-profit outside of China, which universities mostly are, right? Uh, even if they were registered as these for-profit consulting companies in China, the Woofies, which most of the centers are, uh, that it was going to affect us because of our, you know, kind of sure. legal, our legal status, but that it wasn't about the ac- academic centers at all. In fact, they were later carved out. It really wasn't about the academic centers, but it, it, you know, created this huge sense of fear, I think, about the the place at the table for these programs in China, especially the ones that didn't have an official university partner that was going to run interference for right. them. So and, how did you that know, manifest the, itself? Were they canceling programs? Were they well, like- in my case, yes, they did. My particular university was, you know, really got very paranoid, I would say, and uh, felt very much like we were at risk, and uh, rightly or wrongly, you know, and for a variety of reasons, you know, uh, felt that the, the center itself was at risk and started canceling programs. I was Jared, doing... We've never encountered anything like that. Have we? <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know, what I was doing, I mean, this, the, the particular circumstances was, uh, were, was that I was, I had worked with the Ford Foundation on women's rights issues right after the Beijing Women's Conference. And I had huge connections in the world of, you know, the China feminist community, uh-huh. the domestic violence network, lots of, you know, organizations working on women's rights issues. So, you know, the center had a grant to do a series of events on Beijing plus 20, the 20th anniversary of the Beijing women's movement. Uh-huh. And, uh, 2015 now, right? Yeah, yeah, that was in 2015. And um, after the Feminist Five were arrested and detained, I think, you know, the university mistakenly thought that all women's rights issues were sensitive in China. And, you know, the Feminist Five wasn't really about that. It was about cross-city organizing and whatever. But right. let's, um, let's put a pin in that. Yeah. Jeremy, quickly ID Feminist Five for, for our listeners. So uh, five feminists who uh, were organizing to um, mount demonstrations about various feminist causes sexual and ended up sexual harassment primarily. Sexual harassment on public uh, transportation. On public yeah. transportation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Terribly controversial topic. And uh, <laughs> so ended why, up yeah. uh, detained and um, apparently some of them, you know, until this day, harassed and intimidated. Yes. Yeah. And why? I mean, what? So then all of our events on you the... You said it was on, cross-city organization. That was the problem that you, you think Yeah, was, was, I think was, they, they were arrested they, because they were young they activists. They were organizing. They were right. organizing. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't about, it. you know, academic discourse in a university center or even any academic discourse, which is rarely ever constrained in China, in but my you felt opinion. Like, but our, our events at the center were canceled. Uh, all and so of them were Canceled this being too was this all the way up from you know Mr. Lee Bollinger? Or well, you know, who knows? We don't really know. Uh, in the end, I mean, I, it was never. It was certainly represented as the senior leadership to me, but w- was it communicated to me by the senior leadership? No. That's uh, we a just very had China, our, China, China we story. We had to, you know, submit a pipeline of our upcoming events, and uh, and you know, the ones that were deemed too sensitive were canceled. And that, you know, that for me was like a Rubicon. After all, I've done in China over the years. It yeah. was, uh, you know, why? Why? Uh, my big question was, why are we here? Right? If right. we're we're yeah. not going to be talking about, uh, you know, about these issues honestly and openly in an academic environment. Uh, hey, Jeremy, did you did you see the or did you listen to the Eric Fish podcast for the Asian Society? Uh, you heard that, right, Joan? Yeah, it's, I did. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. It was great. Oh my yeah. god, it was some of the best radio reporting that I've I've, I've come across. I mean, it's it's really uh, it, it's excellent. Um, so you know, it tackles this issue. It looks specifically at the at the uh, NYU Shanghai program and really interviews this really wide gamut of people on on different sides of the issue i think he he does an extraordinarily fair and balanced job uh, mm-hmm. of, of looking at you know this very thorny issue sorry jeremy you were about to yeah it's just um john you'd earlier you you said that you thought that duke kunshan and nyu shanghai because they had local government partners actually had a certain amount of protection but i, I that i find that interesting because my sense of working in china with foreign companies and entities that work with a, a local partner is that they often become more cautious and self-censored to a greater degree because you start being like Chinese people. You have something invested. Mr. Wang is not just Mr. Wang. He's your colleague, Mr. Wang, that you get to know. And you don't want Mr. Wang to get in trouble. Therefore, you cancel your lecture on, uh, you know, corruption in the Communist Party, for example. And there's no yeah, point it, waiting it, around for Mr. White. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, is that not what happens when there's a local government partner? Do you think that they I, I don't or not? think so. First of all, I think you know for these these 
you know, I thought Jeff Lehman was fabulous about this on the Eric Fish, uh, you know, podcast. Um, I, I think that, you know, that the principle of academic freedom has been reiterated. And there's a lot of home faculty opposition to these things. And I think, you know, the core values of the university, um, you know, it's a slippery slope. You really need to preserve the core value of the universities. And I don't think there has been a lot of real in the classroom censorship, you know, at all in any of these programs. I think the way it happens is more subtle in a way. It's like what programs are allowed to, ha- you know, what happened in the first place. Like if you're going to do a program on law and did with this with lawyers who were challenging the government on some issues related to rights or procedure something like that or detentions would NYU actually let that program happen you know in the first place once the thing was approved and happens I don't think there's any restriction in the classroom uh, in the classroom right. Right. yeah I think that was reflected in that you in know that podcast, in yeah. that podcast I think that it's a kind of subtle directing activities that has uh, happens at a you know three steps before in a way so how should these foreign universities and these foreign uh, programs especially american programs be thinking about the ngo law is there more danger right now than in them being too cautious or too cavalier well you know frankly i think it's the the danger is in being too cautious Mm. but you know i've always been kind of an optimist and a uh, kind of a boundary pusher person in China in some ways, you know, I think there's plenty of room, yeah, plenty of partners in China who the the NGO world is here to stay. I mean, it's not like it's the same thing, the genie's out of the bottle, you know, for the last 20 years, you've had a very, very active civil society space. And some issues, the issues I've worked on on HIV AIDS, I've done a lot of work in that area. You know, the government is totally bought in on the important role, uh, essential role of these organizations and things like reaching out to communities of people living with AIDS and other things like that. You know, so the NGO sector is not going to go away. The gov- government partners and, and the environment's another area where, you know, you've got really these very important actors who've been operating in collaboration with government for a long period of time. And those partners will make it continue to make it happen. And I think, therefore, not being too cautious is important. It's a time many of my kind of closest colleagues who work on these issues see it as a time of opportunity in a way. I mean, it's opportunity in a very much more restricted way than it was, say, five years ago or 10 years ago. But um, I think the, it will build again very quickly. You know, there are only about 100 organizations have registered so far under this foreign NGO law. But I think you're going to see the pace you know, quicken. And I think there's kind of a co-creation opportunity here. Some of my closest colleagues use that, you know, kind of uh, analogy in a way to, not analogy, but, you know, phrase to describe the opportunity right now. China's always been a little bit Wild West, as you know, you know, where you kind of make it, you create it as you go. And there's a lot of opportunity. Ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in this space, there's an openness to by people who want to have this sector, you know, continue and the the foreign actors be involved in it to to try to find ways to make it happen in a positive way. Doesn't it also depend on what the organization does? I mean, Absolutely. so, you know, educational Ivy League schools are going to be okay because China loves them. If you're solving health issues, it's going to be okay. But if you are maybe the American Bar Association, I don't know if they've registered. I mean, if you're no, working on I legal mean, issues, isn't that going to just be very, very, very tough? Well, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, if you just go 
back to why this law is in place in the first place. It's really to try to control and create a more transparent uh, structure where who's funding what in China, especially related to any kind of political organizing that may challenge the party. I mean, that's that's you know, the aim of it, right? Suite, Th- that's a, what it's for. The yeah, main that's why it this law. Yeah, there's right. a there's a suite of you know new security legislation that all has come out around the same time, and you know the fact that the Public Security Bureau, rather than the Ministry of Civil Affairs, is in charge of the foreign NGO says it all, right? right? It used to be the Ministry of Civil Affairs, and things were progressing towards a less regulatory environment. It's now with the Public Security Bureau, and the regulations are clearly being articulated, especially to create more transparency and who's funding what. And for those areas of that the government is concerned about that, you know, will potentially lead to anti-party organizing, you know, they, they're, they're not going to easily find partners and be able to do what they've done or been doing. Right? And, and are certain funders going to be targeted? I mean, like, say, if the end, the National... Uh, Endowment uh, for Democracy. Uh, the, <laughs> the NDA. The National... <laughs> the Non-Disclosure Agreement. Will the National Endowment for Democracy, for example, be kind of blacklisted? Or the Soros, you know, Open Society, are those going to be more difficult than the you Ford know, Foundation? I, I don't know if they're going to be blacklisted, you know, and I think it's important to kind of look like at what's going already. on and, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, I think they're going to have a hard time finding, the, you know, a sponsoring organization, a PSU, a, pro- a primary uh, professional supervisory organization, which is the mechanism by which an NGO, foreign NGO, can register in the country. Uh, you know, people will stay away from these organizations that they consider to be, if not officially blacklisted, you know, uh, slightly toxic, sli- right. toxic or mm. somewhat suspect. And, you know, the same thing sort of going on in Russia and India, Turkey, a lot of other places in the world right now. It's not kind of unique to China, but uh, in China, I think, you know, it's being it's fairly well organized now on the PSU thing the pro, the you know professional supervisory unit i mean this isn't a new thing either you know i've been around the ngo sector in china for a long time and in the uh, 90s when i was with the ford foundation you know ford was very involved in helping kind of uh support you know the emerging civil society actors yeah. in a lot of different areas yeah program, you, right yeah now. you know even with the ministry of civil affairs there was this dual management system where you had to find a kind of mother-in-law organization you know, that would take you on and be responsible for you politically and some degree financially, right? And uh, so this is not a new thing, this professional supervisory unit. It's just the organizations are, they're, you know, they're government organization. It's the, not the Ministry of Civil Affairs. It's not about building and enabling the sector as much as it was previously. Now it's more about controlling and creating transparency uh, of the sector. You know, so what would you advise uh, the the administration of one of these organizations that's coming in they don't have that kind of on the ground knowledge they don't i mean you know you and and people who have been around the block who you know the, who for whom this is not the first rodeo who you know the subtleties of this you, you can sort of feel the, the subtle shifts of the wind but it's 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 sort of hard to to form policy just based on that right i mean would you just say look you got to trust the people you have on the ground you have to sort of trust the people who who have that experience and and, and that 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 sensitivity to it Yes, I do. Yeah, I think you have to trust the people you have on the ground. I mean, that, uh, that certainly wasn't my experience approach, yeah. recently. And I think it was wrong. I think a lot of the organizations outside of China don't understand China that well and how to o- operate in China and may or may not have, you know, 
faculty steering committees or other types of governance structures or faculty who they can, you know, who have more experience in China, they can consult. But I think you have to trust people who've been on the ground and have worked in China. China's a fairly predictable place in a lot of ways. And I think, it, you know, and if you're trusted and if you're considered sort of a friend of China and you have experience working on the ground, and you have a number of high-level contacts and things like that, you know, you, you know, you can navigate the system right. uh, to some degree. I mean, you guys know that, right? Yeah, and, I mean, because uh, it's the same thing that is true of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the conundrum that so many people face right now, whether you're an internet company, you know, whether you're Google contemplating an exit or Facebook contemplating an entry, whether, you know, you're a publisher, you're a writer and you're, you're wondering whether you want your book translated into Chinese. There's, there's this sort of compromise you, you have to make. And there's this calculus that we all have to perform of is that compromise worth the change that we think that we might be able to affect or uh, the mm-hmm. good that we might be able to yeah. do? Yeah. The other thing I think that's really important is that, you know, laws are laws, but in China, you know, the laws are, not, you know, the law isn't always... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not the ultimate broker of, uh, you know, what's going to happen. If, right. You know, if they're out to get you, they're going to get you, whether or not, you know, they'll use Lashma, the law. But if right. not, you know... <laughs> they'll so, make up a law, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's yeah. the law is yeah. kind of, it's almost like a... a it's out there <laughs> as a kind of a... You know. It's a tool for doing things that <laughs> right. sometimes you have to worry about and sometimes you don't. Yeah, absolutely. But, Wise I mean, words. John, Wise I think where Kais was going for that is, you know, and I think, I mean, this is a question that's very interesting to you for sure and Kais and me because we've had to make these kind of decisions. How far is too far? You know, there's a troll on the internet that thinks Kaiser has stained his immortal soul by working for Baidu, which I completely <laughs> disagree with. Uh, but, you know, for that's him, just working friend, for right. Baidu, that was enough to you know, condemn Kaiser to the worst, uh, you know, the worst, worst circle, you know, the right. seventh circle, whatever. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think that's ridiculous. But, you know, some of the things I've worked on, I, I wonder, you know, where's the line? I think you're pretty clean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, uh, you know, what you mean, what's the line in terms of compromising your values? Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, you know, you know when you get there, right? And, uh, you know, for the... Like pornography. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my, my, I have an expression I use for... When people say it's a slippery slope, I'll slip down that slope when I get to it. No, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I think if you feel like you're contributing to, uh, you know, social betterment in some way, at least for me, the calculus has always been, do I have colleagues who I can work work with, who are, are the champions of these issues in China, whom I can facilitate or assist and work with to move forward an important socialist issue like domestic violence or, you know, the you, AIDS you, you response. You said socialist issue. <laughs> yeah, I'm a social do-gooder, you know, whatever. I'll, you know, but... Um, you know, I think you just, you know, if you, you don't feel like you're contributing, but you feel like you're compromising your, your core values or you're, you're aiding and abetting something that you think is something you don't, you know, you really don't believe in and don't want to have happen. That's your, that's your Rubicon, right? I mean, a Rubicon for me is whether, well, how much do I self-censor on issues that I, first of all, that I don't think are sensitive and I think are important and where there are champions in China 
who are trying to move these issues forward. And I always, always respect my Chinese colleagues to tell me where the line is and the boundary of safety in all ways for them. They're the ones at risk. I mean, I'm not at risk, you know. Uh, yeah, we have to, we, I we, think that we don't have the skin uh, uh, in the game that, that yeah, our yeah, Chinese yeah, colleagues that's do. That's for sure. We that's should right. always remember it's that. It's one of the reasons why people who are highly judgmental, uh, Westerners who are highly judgmental about these issues Piss annoy off, us. Right. Right? You know, both guys <laughs> yeah. and me, for sure. Uh, Joan, we're going to run out of time and we have to talk about the Schwarzman Scholars Program because we believe that all of our listeners in their 20s are very, very smart and should apply for the, the program. <laughs> so can you tell us about it? Yeah, this is your yeah. chance to make a pitch and get some Absolutely. good applicants. Absolutely. Well, I, we, you know, we are seeking future global leaders. And uh, those of you who think you may be that person, apply to the Schwarzman Scholars Program. We're a fabulous new one-year master's in global affairs with a focus on China, a focus on uh, leadership, and it's highly selective, but uh, we recruit globally. Um, uh, the age range is 22 to 28, and uh, we're looking uh, for people who are interested in trying to be a bridge in in the you know in the in this in the next decades between China and the rest of the world. Young future global leaders who are interested in spending a year in China at Tsinghua University in this new one year fully funded master's degree program uh, with an fully funded means like. Your airplane ticket, everything, your food, your, everything, your, your everything. books, the whole deal. Wow. The whole deal right. uh, in a beautiful new building on oh, the Tsinghua campus. Unfettered uh, internet, yeah, filtered and, air, yeah. a gym. What else? Like uh, <laughs> With China, future Chinese global leaders right, right, and right, right. Uh, and other leaders from around the world. And, uh, you know, in a very intense residential college cohort experience, we're just about to graduate our first class. We're recruiting for year three right now. We have uh, 100 and... And, uh, 29 incoming scholars next year, 110 graduating, um, and we're actively recruiting. So go and to our website, schwartzmanscholars.org, right? right? Let's and, spell that, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z-M-A-N scholars.org. Right? And tell them Seneca sent you. Yeah. We have fabulous people teaching in the program and coming and speaking at the pro- in the program. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful Tsinghua University uh, experience. Um, it's up in the northeast corner of it, right? Yes, it is. So it's, it's a fairly new area. I mean, that that was sort of the wilds of, of old Yeah, Chihuahua. it's where all the sort of sports fields, the swimming pool, right. everything, everything is. Um, and it's it's you know it's great. I, I urge you to apply if you're interested. Yeah, no, I, it looks just f- fantastic. I just wish I were younger. Well, I wish I were younger for many other reasons too, but. <laughs> that's terrific you know, Joan, me too <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> very wise words from Joan though today I mean Joan so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and uh, stick around let's let's make some recommendations for our listeners yeah yeah alright so before we get to recommendations I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com you can follow SupChina on Twitter at at SupChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news if you like the cynical podcast by all means leave us a positive review on the apple itunes store or on google play or any of the podcast catchers as they call them wherever it is that you go to review apps uh this really helps it means a whole ton to us and on to recommendations jeremy kick us off what do you got 
Okay, firstly, just in terms of feedback, if you ever want to give us feedback, don't hesitate to write to yeah, Jeremy please. at subchina.com or Kaiser at subchina.com or anyone who works with us, just use their first name. But my recommendation for today is uh, uh, Kishore uh, Mabubani, yeah. which, uh, who is a former senior diplomat. I think he was even... Uh, had a vice uh, foreign minister. He was first at one point. Taught at Schwartzman College. He this okay, year. so from Singapore, and yeah. I, I think he's one of the most interesting thinkers on uh, China uh, and China and America, oh, and China and its relationship with the rest of the world. He's and I don't agree with everything he says, but some things I, I I I find he makes a lot of sense, and he's always interesting to read. So the story I'd like to, the article I'd like to recommend is something he had in the Huffington Post, and it's titled. It's a problem that America is still unable to admit it will become number two to China. This is partly why Trump happened. So, uh, you know, you may not agree with it, but it's a good read. Yeah, actually, I, I referred to that piece a couple times in something that I had written recently uh, about actually about Belt and Road. Uh, you know, it is an, it's an excellent piece. Oh, I mean, it's right, yeah. contentious yeah. and. And I mean, he doesn't pull punches. The guy, he, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he's, you know, kind of an LKY protege, uh, and really smart, smart guy. Yeah. He gave a talk, taught, taught in class at, in, at Schwartzman College this year. Just a, you know, representation of our fabulous guest lecturers and <laughs> faculty. Joe Nye was on our podcast recently. He, he, yeah, Joe, Joe Nye, Nye was on. Yeah. We had Joe Nye. Many, many of your guests, Susan Shirk, have uh, been. Yeah, you're just you know, gonna, you basically yeah. run through all guest lists guest and then list. you invite them to Schwartzman. <laughs> I see. Yes, absolutely. Well, we have to get you guys there. Yeah, get us there, really and we'll, we'll do, do a live podcast. podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'd be psyched to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Joan, what do you have for us? Well, apropos of today's topic, I thought I would recommend the Asia Society China Files new China NGO project, uh, China Files NGO project, which was launched on June 7th. This is a fabulous website. It's got five sec- sections, um, you know, including a kind of latest updates, uh, from the editors. Facts, laws and regulations, links and media, and resources, including Ask an Expert, for all those people out there who are trying to figure out how to navigate the new foreign NGO law in China. It is, it's fabulous. It's really fabulous. And I provided a huge, you know, my trove of documents that I collect (laughs) on all this stuff. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to be an absolutely wonderful resource, uh, in this domain. It's just an information and kind of service site, I would say for people trying to figure stuff out. Um, I, I am such a fan of China File. I mean, mm-hmm. I think what Susie and John are it's doing great. It's just so yeah. great. It's so great. And what is the URL? Is it, can you find it at the ChinaFile.com Yeah, you just page? go to Asia Society and go to China File. There's a link to the, it's called the China Files NGO Project. Okay. And it really we'll just launched, yeah. just launched. And I've sent, I cool. can't tell you how many people I've sent there already to ask an expert and other things who've asked me, you know, you know, how do you get a temporary activities permit and that kind of stuff? Do I need one? Oh, you know, what a great, great recommendation. Yeah. I think many of our listeners are going to find it very useful. Excellent. So I want to make a belated recommendation for the podcast Hi-Fi Nation from Barry Lamb. Uh, Barry, uh, who's become a friend of mine now, he, he's a Vassar philosophy professor. He took a year at Duke at uh, this excellent program uh, where he produced the podcast. And, you know, I had lunch with a couple of times. He came over to a party. Great guy. Really, really good podcast. I mean, it's amazing. It's a very nicely produced kind of radio magazine style podcast. It looks at real world situations kind of through the lens of philosophy. He, he is an academic philosopher, but you know, he doesn't come off that way, uh, at all. I've wanted to plug it for some time now. And then one night I happened to be awake at like 2 a.m. and 
Overcast, my, my personal favorite podcast app that Jeremy introduced me to, uh, informed me that that Slate Culture podcast, another podcast I like, had dropped. And to my amazement, they were reviewing his podcast. This, this one, it was, you know, getting a, a few hundred downloads. And now it's like ranking very, very high. And it's doing really well. Really much deserved to, or I guess Slate gave him, you know, three, I guess, six thumbs up. Uh, um, his, his subscriptions have just gone nuts and, You'll, you'll really enjoy it. There's this one where he interviews Errol Morris, the filmmaker, the documentary filmmaker who made Cloud, Fog of War and other things, Thin Blue Line, uh, where he does this massive takedown of Thomas Kuhn, you know, the guy who wrote Structures of Scientific Revolution, uh, which is a book I, I thoroughly hate. So it's a, it's, it's a great, it's a great podcast. You'll really enjoy it. Joni, thanks again. Uh, it was so good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me do this. I've really enjoyed it and, uh, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Seneca Podcast. <laughs> oh, you don't so. need to say that. <laughs> we love you. Anyway, uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Uh, you know, as Jeremy said, you know, drop us an email. Really do. I mean, we, we love to hear from you guys. Tell us what we could be doing better. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.